Now, if you're sitting down with your favorite dish or your favorite dessert or your favorite drink, you don't just scarf it back. You know, you enjoy it, you savor it, you, you prolong it. At least that's what I'm told <laughs> you're supposed to do. Because what I, what I tend to do is I just enjoy something so much, I just, it just goes down. I and mean, sometimes we'll be eating and Susan will look over and she's like, whoa, it's gone, what happened? And it's just, oh... But, you know, um, you know, each Christmas we get these chocolates, and uh, I, f- I forget what they're called now, the, the, the ones we get. What are they? Yeah, the Rayo Thompson, goodness. Anyways, and uh, I put the whole thing in my mouth. I love them. And uh, Rebecca and Susan are always like, no, you have to, like, savor it. But we've been going through Luke 15 for five weeks now. We're going to do two more, you know, we're going to do seven in total. This is the sixth week. And we've been savoring this parable. We've been savoring Luke 15. We're trying to milk all the goodness of the gospel and God's love out of it. We can keep passing over this teaching that Jesus gave us. And it, because we're not just reading the scriptures. The scriptures read us. So that's why you can read the same scripture over and over and over. And it will continually speak to you. Not because it all of a sudden has some sort of new message. Because the scriptures actually mean something. But because when we read them, they are reading us, and they are now bringing to light things in our own hearts, and in our own minds, in our own lives. And the the rescue of grace continues in this trajectory of renewal and reform, and it's beautiful and it's powerful. And so as we've been in Luke 15, um, we see that God's grace, shown through the, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons, it doesn't just renew us individually. In this teaching, we see that this rescue of grace actually creates a community of grace. It's not just an individual renewal, but there's also a communal uh, element of celebration to this because God's whole goal in redemption, from Genesis to Revelation in in, in a synopsis, is he's drawing together for himself a family, a community, who enjoys life together with him at the center. That's been his plan from the beginning. And so we're going to pick up Jesus' teaching after he teaches about the lost sheep that is then found, and after he teaches about the lost coin that is then found, we're going to pick it up now at the point where the lost son takes the inheritance, goes out, spends everything, and he comes to himself. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 17 through to 32. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And bring a ring and put it on his hand. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he said, What does this mean? And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. 
But the older brother was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Now in this story, Jesus illuminates the overarching theme of Scripture. Exile and homecoming. If you're new to the Bible or you're exploring Christian faith today, that is what the Bible is about. It is about us being exiled and being brought into a gracious, radical homecoming. It's the theme of the, of the scriptures. When you get to the end of the Bible, it gives you a picture of what God wanted at the beginning of the Bible. So the, the story arc of Christian faith and what Christians, for those of you who are maybe new to the Bible or you're exploring this morning, Christian faith is not about evacuation. It's restoration. We're not... We're not leaving into this ethereal, spiritual kind of plane of non-existent, you know, bliss. But God is coming here and he is restoring the earth. You know, when I was a kid, heaven was always explained in these ethereal terms. It was like a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial. There was, you know, they, people would read Revelation, like, literally, and be like, there's going to be, the roads are going to be literally gold. There's going to be literally pearly gates. And I, as a little kid, I was just kind of like, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. It doesn't sound that exciting. You just think we're going to be singing all the time. And I'm just having visions of me floating around in a diaper for all of eternity, playing a harp. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I want to go to heaven. I think I like earth better. Now, you know there's a problem with how you're explaining the hope of the gospel when you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, before I get to that, I've got a laundry list of things I'd like to do here on earth. So here's, here's, the, here's the revelation in a nutshell. Do you like being a human? Good, because eternity is you being restored, you, with God, here, in the new earth, that he comes, metaphor, you know, uh, symbolically, Revelation 21, the city of God coming, the new Jerusalem coming where the earth is restored, where everything we love is restored, all of the things that you enjoy that are good gifts of God's common grace in the earth being restored, and everything that is tragic and horrifying and, 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 and uh, causes suffering, those things are being eradicated. This is the hope of the Christian faith. And so Jesus gives this great hope, which ends in radical celebration in the story of the prodigal son, because... The hope of Christ's death and resurrection means that his death wasn't final, which means in the Christian hope that our death isn't final. When I say hope, I don't mean it in the English sense, because when we say hope, we mean fingers crossed, I hope it doesn't rain. But in the Greek, which is the New Testament was written in Greek, hope meant certainty, a surety. So when Paul and the other New Testament writers are like the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have of a future inheritance, it's not like fingers crossed, I hope this works out. It's there is a certainty there. There is a certainty of celebration. And the certainty of that celebration impacts the day-to-day of how we live our lives. So Jesus gives us this great teaching as a picture of, of all of Christian, all of the scriptures, the hope of the gospel, in a microcosm with the story of this prodigal son. But I want you to notice that in, in Luke 15, and we've been going through it for weeks, that you've got the lost son, the lost coin, 
and the lost sheep. And there's a common denominator between those three pictures, three pictures telling one story. The common denominator is celebration. They all end in celebration. The lost is found, and there's great celebrating. And that's going to be our focus this morning of this celebration, the impact that the knowledge of that celebration has in our day-to-day. Because the Christian life, like everybody else's life, is full of hardships and trials and sufferings. There's, there's things in the Christian life, like everybody else's life, that bring tears to our eyes. There's heartache. Everybody who walked through the doors of Redeemer this morning, you all have, within, in your life, things that you can be very excited about and celebrate, and you also have things that cause your heart to be heavy. All of us do. And so there is a hope of the assurance of that celebration for the Christian that creates a pervasive joy, a pervasive joy that is there even in our tears, even in our suffering, a pervasive joy that gives us strength in weakness because of our hope in Christ that is unlike any other worldview. It is more hopeful than any other worldview because... uh, it impacts our day-to-day in such a beautiful way that even through tears, that there is, a, there is a constant fountain of joy and of strength that we can draw on and rest in the goodness and the grace of God. A few years ago, uh, we went to uh, see The Lion King on, uh, on stage live, and it gets to that one part where Simba says to his dad, Mufasa, the big lion, he's like, you know, the circle of life conversation, and, and Mufasa's explaining the circle of life, and Simba kind of clues in that they're at the top of the food chain. He's like, well, don't we eat the antelope? And then his dad's like, well, yeah, I mean, we eat the antelope, but then we die, and when we die, we become the grass, and we fertilize her, and then the antelope eat us. So it's beautiful. It's a big circle of life. And then all of a sudden, there's these, uh, you get swept into the art. The music crescendos, and the voices fill the room, and the, 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 the magic on the stage with the sets and the costumes and the puppets, they had these massive elements coming down the aisles, you know, that were operated by like six or seven individuals. It was unbelievable. And the, 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 the room was filled with these birds that were carefully constructed and choreographed on these, on these poles. And the circle of life, yeah! And, and everybody's, yes, everybody's cheering. It was, it was amazing how they pulled this scene off. But then you step back. And if you get philosophical for a moment, you just take a beat. It's a song about becoming fertilizer. <laughs> Yay! A trajectory of exile into nothingness. Woo! We came from nowhere. We're going nowhere. We're living in between the nothings. Right? This is why when you read philosophers, they all, the ones that have thought deeply about the implications of not having God, many of them are depressed. Many of the things they write are dark. Because they're saying, hey, you have two options. You can, be, you can stick your head in the sand and not think about you know, eternity. Or if you do think about it like in, a, in a real profound philosophical way, you get very sad. And that's why you read a lot of these guys and it kind of sounds that way. So in the story of the prodigal son, in this parable, Jesus is giving us a picture of something that is hopeful. Saying, let me tell you how this thing ends. Let me tell you the trajectory of your exile. You see, the, today's sermon in a sentence is this. Our sin exiled us. Our Savior exonerates us. And our celebration re-envisions us. That's the hope of the Christian faith. Our exile is met with exoneration, and it's going to celebration. For you kids who are in the service today, to be exonerated, when I say our Savior exonerates us, that means he takes away all our guilt, he takes away all our pain, he takes away all our sin, and he recalibrates us and sets us before God in such a way that in the end is not the circle of life, in the end, is radical celebration. 
So let's look at this first thing, um, how our sin exiled us. So in the garden in Genesis 3, you've got Adam and Eve, our federal representatives, who they sin, and they are exiled from the garden. They go east of Eden. And because they were exiled, all of humanity is born into a state of exile. Our souls are essentially in exile. So the condition of this prodigal son is a picture of the human condition. Right? The prodigal son is all of us. At one point, all of us were prodigal. Right? We didn't want life under our father's wise and loving rule. He didn't want life under his father's wise and loving rule. So he chose self-rule, and he left. Adam and Eve chose self-rule, and they left. And we, all of us, left to our own devices, choose self-rule, and our hearts leave. And so we're exiled, we were born into a state of exile from God, and our souls, just like that prodigal, are in an incredible, chronic, unrelenting state of hunger. That's a, such a strong theme in this story of the prodigal, is that he's hungry. That's how he comes to himself. All of us, all of our souls, are hungry. The soul, exiled from God, is always hungry, never satisfied. And we just have a thousand ways of trying to fill that hunger. And we all do it in different ways. We've all done it in different ways. And even when we come to faith in Christ and we are rescued and exonerated, we are given a new nature, yet that old residue of that old nature remains and it rears its ugly head in all of our lives. And it is calling us to say, hey, fill your hunger and come and eat over here. All of us have this. In verse 14, it says that the prodigal spent everything. And in verse 17, it says he was perishing with hunger. I want to make a connection for you. He spent everything, and then he was hungry. What Jesus teaches us as we look at how this story unpacks is he was hungry first, which was why he left. He was hungry, so he spent everything. And he ends up hungry. If his soul was satisfied under the loving rule of his father, he would have never left. But his soul was hungry, so he left because he was hungry. He spent everything because he was hungry. And where does he end up? Hungry. This is a picture of the human condition in a microcosm. This is what happened in the garden. This is what happens with all of us. James K. Smith, who you've heard me quote many times, wrote a great book I read earlier this year called uh, You Are What You Love. And James K. Smith describes the soul this way. He's a uh, professor of philosophy at Calvin College in the States. He says that our, he says the soul, really, you know, in exile from God, it's like an existential shark. That, have you watched Shark Week? You know, you watch Shark Week, and those things are moving, 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 moving. They don't stop. You never watch an episode of Shark Week, and there's a shark just kind of, you know, floating there like a, like a, like a puffer fish. You know, hey, guys. I just got tired of moving. I thought I'd just take a beat. It never happens. On Shark Week, moving, 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 moving. That's our soul. Our soul is in exile apart from God, an existential shark, constantly moving towards the thing we think will feed us. And so we were born into the state of exile, and so all of our souls are constantly moving to various sins, whatever they are, this thing that we say, like, this thing will feed my hunger, this thing will satisfy my hunger. And so Jesus depicts the prodigal in exile being brought into homecoming by sheer grace. And when a prodigal soul gets brought into this homecoming, brought into the celebration, it's symbolic of the end of soul thirst, the end of soul hunger. We gather on Sunday mornings, week in and week out, because we're celebrating that finally we have found the one who can end our hunger. 
Think about it this way. When you, when you say, because um, the prodigal comes home, right? And that's our trajectory. We're all going to be home. But even before we're home, today though, when we say, oh, I, it feels like home. When you go to a place and say it feels like home, or you say it feels like home. Really what we're saying is, I feel like I can be myself. Right? Well, the condition of the soul to really be itself was Genesis 2. To really be ourself and really flourish that's a life with God. That's communion with God. That's being united to God. And of course, for us, that can only happen through Christ, through faith in Christ by grace alone. But that was the state of the soul to be like, oh, it feels like home. And so because we were exiled because of sin, all of humanity has a sense of feeling like this doesn't feel like home. And so there's that hungering in the soul, just like the prodigal. And so we live in this world that's it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's profoundly at odds with our deepest desires and it's incapable of, of satisfying us. Because of God's common grace, he's given these beautiful gifts and abilities to all of you and everybody else in this city, regardless of their faith in him, regardless of whether they place their faith in, in Christ or not. God is, by his common grace, so we enjoy many aspects of God's common grace. Right? We've got aspects of um, human wisdom and ingenuity that makes our community flourish, our lives are enriched, the arts and professions and business and, and, uh, and music. We enjoy the ingenuity and wisdom of, of men and women from every culture using their diverse gifts to make the, the city flourish. So there's so much about God's common grace that we enjoy because in God's common grace, he's actually also restricting evil in the earth. We're not the worst versions of ourselves. When we say everybody's a sinner, we're not saying they're the worst, most vile, immoral you know, uh, version of humanity. To be a sinner uh, just means that our soul is in exile. We are all, we have all been extensively impacted by sin. So we enjoy these beautiful things because of God's common grace, but at the same time, because our soul is in exile, because we're like those prodigals, that's the reason behind why the world is the way that it is. That's why we love nature and we enjoy nature, but yet we're devastated by, uh, uh, devastated by natural disasters. That's why we enjoy educational and technological advancement, but then we continually to battle systemic racism and inequality and injustice and, op and, and oppression. We passionately seek social justice, and that's a very good thing. And then at the same time, globally speaking, we're not putting our guns down. We're building bigger guns. And that's why we, we make strong, concerted efforts to be ecologically responsible. That's a very good thing. But at the same time, unbridled materialism causes for us not only to have the environment erode, but our souls erode, because the whole reason behind it is our souls are hungering, believing that the answer to our hunger is to have something new and shiny, to have something more. We're in this state of exile, and sin has done this to us. But the good news of the gospel is that our Savior exonerates us. So this prodigal, he left his father because his soul was hungry, and then he spends everything, just like how we will keep spending everything, and our souls will still be hungry. But then our Savior comes and he exonerates us. If you look at verse 17, verse 17 says, the way it describes him is it says, perishing with hunger. It's a key phrase, perishing with hunger. Picture of all of us apart from Christ, our souls perishing from hunger. And even though this is an image in Jesus' teaching of physical hunger, he's provoking the original audience, and he's provoking us by extension, to consider that he came to address 
our perpetual hunger. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus describes himself as bread. He says, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats of me will not hunger. So you've got a picture of humanity in constant hunger. The prodigal is in constant hunger. All of us who were once the prodigal in constant hunger, our souls in constant hunger, existential sharks constantly hungry and constantly chasing after things, saying maybe this will satisfy me. Maybe this will finally bring rest to my heart. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the meal. I'm the one that came to save you from your hunger problem. And so there's something that's really important to consider about how Jesus is pointing to himself to say, I'm the one that solves the hunger problem. Think about it. In Luke 15, you have three images. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The lost sheep, somebody goes and looks for the sheep. They find the sheep and they celebrate. The lost coin, the woman goes, looks for the coin. Finds the coin, calls all her friends, celebrate. The lost son, nobody goes looking for him. It gets lost on us in English because as modern North Americans, we wouldn't pick this up because this isn't how we think. But I promise you, in the ancient world, Jesus is doing something specific. There's a lost sheep, but then they go and they, find, they, they seek out the sheep and, and they find the sheep and they bring it back. There's a lost coin and she sweeps and sweeps and sweeps and she finds a coin and she brings it back. And there's a lost son. Nobody goes. Who should have gone? In the ancient world, they all knew the answer. In the ancient world, they're already all thinking it. The older brother should have gone. It's his responsibility. He's the one that gets two-thirds of the inheritance. The older brother is the one. It's, it's his responsibility to keep the family together. That was his job. The older brother should have gone to go, go get the younger brother. But what's the older brother doing in the story? The younger brother's gone, wrecking his life. The religious rule keeper is staying at home, checking all the boxes, making sure that he can get a blessing from his father. Because the way that the story unfolds, the older brother doesn't love the father either. The older brother just wants what the father can give him. So the older brother isn't going and looking. This is what we see. And so what, what ends up happening is when the, in, in verse uh, 31, when the, father, when the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. He wasn't kidding. Which is why the older brother was angry. Because the younger brother goes out and the older brother doesn't go after him. The older brother just stays there checking all the religious boxes. And when the, when the father says, everything I have is yours, he's like, that's the point. That's my robe, that's my ring, that's my fatted calf. His return has been very costly for me. Nobody's going and looking for him. Rat, you know, free grace for the prodigal. Free grace. Cost him nothing. But grace is, not, grace is extremely costly. The grace cost the older brother a whole lot. And so Jesus is... Here, showing that there is this dichotomy here. The, the one who, the, the older brother who should have gone to his other brother, brother is upset that his father seems to be giving grace to all the wrong people. That's his complaint. That's why he uses the, the Greek phrase when he says, I was, I was serving you, I was slaving for you. And in the Greek, uh, doulos. I was a slave. Here I was doing all this thing, checking all the boxes to get a blessing. And, you know, and he's angry. You're giving grace to the wrong people. Give grace to the rule keepers. Give grace to the good guys. Well, there's no good guys. That's the point. Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus doesn't divide the world up into good guys and bad guys. He divides them up into lost and found. And so, zoom out for a second. Let's zoom out to, to, so we can get the gravity of what Jesus is, is getting at. 
he's having lunch, right? He's having lunch with all these people the religious leaders don't want to have anything to do with. And so Jesus is now holding up a mirror to these Pharisees. And he's saying, you're complaining that I'm having lunch with these people who are outcasts. You're the older brother. You're, you're the one that should, you, you should be going and bringing them to the Father. But you're not bringing them to the Father. You're hiding in your synagogue. You're checking all the boxes. You're walking across the other side of the street when you see them coming. Now, I know these Pharisees are horrible, and nobody here at KW Redeemer would ever have this attitude. I know, that I'm just, you know, I know this would never happen here, that any of us would ever be like, man, I'm way above you. There's no way, I'm gonna, there's no way you're gonna allow, I'm going to allow you to be costly to my life. I've got to avoid this whole thing. See, Jesus is holding up this mirror, and he's saying, whoa, these poor prodigals get you as the older brother, but, but you know who the older brother is? Church, relax, it's not you. you, you don't, you're, you're not Jesus in the story. Jesus says, I'm the one who goes out. I'm the true older brother. I'm the one who is going to bring you to the Father, and it's going to be totally at my expense. We are the prodigals here. But we've got Jesus who brought us back to the Father at his expense. It cost him absolutely everything. Luke Luke 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus announces it. He's like, this is why I came. So when the Pharisees are like, why are you sitting there with this people? People, Jesus holds up the mirror and he's like, "You, you who have the grace of the Father should be going out, but you're not. I am, I am going out. This is the good news for us, church. I'm not, sharing that to guilt, I'm not sharing that to guilt trip you to say, now get out there on Monday and chase after the prodigals. What I'm trying to get you to do is sit in the fact that you're the prodigal. And that you've been brought in by great grace that you didn't deserve. That Jesus did it at his expense. And it's, and it's from that place of rest and that place of celebration that we now go out and say, hey, come, we know where the bread is. Come, we know where the party is. Right, as Luther once said, right? We're all beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. Come to the party. Come to the feast. This is the goodness of the gospel. Jesus was exiled so that we could be exonerated. In Matthew 8, 20, Jesus says, The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Exile. Jesus at the cross is crucified outside the city walls. Exile. He was utterly cast out and he spared absolutely no expense so that us prodigals could be brought back in. Jesus was the one who said, I'm the bread of life and whoever comes to me will neither hunger nor thirst no more. He said to the woman at the well, Hey, drink drink uh, from the living water that I'm bringing and you won't thirst anymore. The one who is the solution to the hunger and the thirst says on the cross, I'm thirsty. He becomes a total exile. I'm thirsty. The Roman sticks the stick in a sponge and he sticks it in sour wine. He pushes it up to Jesus' bruised and bloody face. And here he is drinking this, this cup of suffering so that you and I enjoy the cup of celebration. He takes all the suffering and sorrow. We get the celebration. He's the true older brother. He's the one that said, I will, I will come back at my expense. That's why the older brother was upset. This is all at my expense. My robe, my ring, my fatted calf. Jesus says, all my expense. 
welcomed the prodigals back in. Jesus' exile paid for our celebration meal, which leads to the final thing, which is that our celebration, it actually re-envisions us for life. Everything that I'm saying to you, that by grace and through faith alone in Christ, you're absolved. That changes our day-to-day and that there's a celebration that's coming. That it's not, you're not becoming a ethereal part of the universe. You're not just going into exile of non-existence. But that there's a restoration that's coming because of Christ for you, which impacts our day-to-day and gives us strength and suffering. In verse 32, the Father says this beautiful phrase. He says, it was fitting that we should celebrate. The older son's freaking out. He says, it was fitting. Now, I'm going to give you uh, a little bit of the Greek here because to say it was fitting is good translation, but it's probably, it's, it could be a lot stronger. Because that word fitting in the Greek is, is uh, adai, which means not only fitting, but it also means absolutely necessary, certain, and get this, inevitable. So when the Father says it was fitting that we should celebrate, he's saying it's certain, it was inevitable. It's a, the celebration was inevitable. Do you see it? The lost sheep, celebration, inevitable. The lost coin ends in celebration, inevitable. The lost son, The father says, well, what do you think is going to happen? This son who was dead is now alive. It's inevitable. Jesus Christ is is the true lost son who was dead and is now alive. And his father says, it's inevitable. The celebration's inevitable. You and I, we we have received Christ through, through grace and through faith alone. So for us, for you, the celebration's inevitable. Most Christians are freaked out. In the end, how is this verdict going to play out? The gospel is you've already got the answer. You've got the verdict before your performance. That's the gospel. It's not Christian karma. The celebration's inevitable. That's why we live to God's glory. That's what drives our obedience. That's what drives our repentance. That's, that's, that's why when we sin, we don't go, meh. Every Sunday, Paul says, my sins are forgiven, past, present, future. That's insanity. Who does that? No. We, it's inevitable. The celebration is inevitable. That's what makes us say, yes, I'm going to confess my sin. Yeah, I'm going to hate that. I'm going to turn for that. If I fall all over myself, I'm going to get up and I'm going to dust myself off and I'm going to be like, Jesus, thank you for your grace. May I live to your glory. the, The celebration is inevitable. It changes absolutely everything. 700 years before Christ was, before Christ was, uh, walk the earth. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 25 and he, he prophesies the celebration that's inevitable. He describes it as a feast with, uh, Rich food and well-aged wine. Come on. That's a prophecy I can get behind. That's, what I, that's how Isaiah describes it. It's inevitable. Christ is going to come. He's going to do it all. It changes everything. Consider something. If you have a person you love, a family member, a friend, and they move to another city or they move to another province or they move to another country, and they come back into town, what do you do to celebrate. You eat. Every time. It's inevitable. Hey, they're coming to town. Let's go out for dinner. Come over. I mean, it's inevitable. Eating and drinking is inevitable. It's a celebration. That's what you do. Susan loves it when her friends come to, come to town. She's like, yeah. In the ancient world, eating, this feast, it's protracted. It's this event. It's all night long. You just graze. You just keep eating and drinking. It's because 
it's a picture of a feast is a picture of nourishment when you get together with family or friends people that you love you're nourished the food is nourishing your body the love and the the love and the laughter is nourishing your soul you're sitting there around the table and you stop and you push back and just take it all in for a second and you're like yeah i feel home right now it's inevitable that's the picture of the celebration that you and i are going to enjoy now i want you to consider something consider something what is the one thing jesus gave for us to remember him what's the one thing of all the things in the entire bible the one thing he said to the christian church he said do this to remember me eat and drink it's inevitable he said if you're going to gather eat and drink and celebrate that at no cost to you and at a radical cost to jesus your exile is done you're exonerated the hunger in the soul is put at rest You don't chase these ridiculous things hoping they satisfy your life. You're now free to actually enjoy good things without making them ultimate things. It's inevitable. The the meal, this beautiful gift. Jesus said, this do. And so the meal makes us realize Christian faith can only be done in community. That's the gift. That's the picture. That's the mode. It's a family. Do you see it? The prodigal comes back into the family. They celebrate. Yes. We are brought into the family. We celebrate. Yes. You can find a better preacher than me in 30 seconds online. But the point is, you're stuck with this prodigal. All my sin, all my shortcomings, all the little idiosyncrasies that the longer you get to know me are going to make you drive you nuts. Hey, welcome to the disfamily, you know, dysfunctional family of God. Where we all come together and we grow and we are renewed and I'm in a, this, this journey of renewal just like you're in a journey of renewal. But we eat and we drink together. You can find a better preacher than me in 30 seconds. You can find better music than this on your, on, on, on your iPod. But you just can't sit at home and listen to a podcast and eat and drink and, and be like, I'm having church. You can't walk through the, the, the woods and say, I'm taking in nature. I'm having church. Do you want to know why? Not because I'm a jerk. Not because I'm a legalist. Just say, what? This guy's been preaching grace for two years and all of a sudden he's on this rant about, hey, this isn't a church attendance rant. If you're on holidays and you're away with your family, have a good time. Enjoy it. I get it. It's only sunny, sunny uh, you know, uh, sunny in Canada for five minutes. So if you're gone at the cottage all summer, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this nonsensical modern idea that, that Christian faith is something that you do privately that doesn't affect the people that are around you. You start distancing yourself from the family, pushing back from the table, from the rest of these prodigals because somehow you're a better prodigal than they are or you commit some sort of a sin and you think that if any of the other prodigals find out about your sin that there's going to be like a, you know, you know, so you think you can dance competition in the, with, amongst the prodigals. Our obedience is not a dance competition. It, it's a dance of celebration. And so you can't withdraw yourself from the family and be like, hey, man, you know, I'm just podcasting it up because Michael Horton kicks Paul's butt. That's not church, man. That's just, that's nothing like what Jesus gave. We've got to get together as the family. And sometimes we look at each other and we're like, well, <laughs> they showed up. Yes, here at KW Redeemer, like, no, all these people are beautiful and amazing. We've, we're, we're only two years, old, two years old as a church. Give it time. Nobody's offended you. Give it time. Don't worry. We're a family. It'll happen. But we gather together around this gift of radical grace. But you want to know something? And I'm going to close with this. When you get together with your family this afternoon and you're eating and drinking, yeah, and your friends and you're celebrating, you know, at some point you have to stop. 
Got to do the dishes. Got to go home. You go out with your friends out to a restaurant and you're loving it. Yeah, I wish this night would ever end. It's going to end. You got to go home. We gather, we eat, we drink. You listen to the gospel preached. I do my best to serve Jesus to you. And then we eat and we drink and then we hang out after and we're laughing and talking. And the community center closes. Got to go home. But a day is coming when we don't go home. Because we are home. And the celebration never ends. And that feeling of, I'm home, never ends. And the knowledge of that changes the suffering you're dealing with on Monday. You go into your work, or you walk across a university campus, or you're raising your children with a great sense of humble confidence because you're not defined by your success or your failure. You go into, you know, you stare in the mirror and your body is still sick, and it's frustrating you, and you wish you felt like you felt when you're 20, but you don't. But you want to know something? There's a pervasive sense of joy that underneath it all, there's a celebration that's inevitable. It's coming. And so we face our day-to-day challenges and trials and sufferings with a great sense of hope that is, that is unlike anything that my words fail me to describe it to you, how good it is. It's all a taste. It's like when, you, it's like when your family is doing Thanksgiving dinner and that you go in the kitchen and you take a little piece of that turkey and you eat it and you go into the other room and all of a sudden your stomach is like, yeah, I'll have more of that. That is coming. That's the Lord's table. That's the gospel. That's celebrating grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Apart from anything you did, you little prodigals, starting with this prodigal, we celebrate it. The sense that our hunger has finally been satisfied. And because all of us fail and flounder, Jesus gives us this meal. He gives us uh, his word so that every seven days we come and we, we refill our souls. Every seven days we come back and we say, I got to recalibrate to the goodness of his grace. I got to recalibrate to the, the inevitable celebration. Our sin exiled us. Our Savior exonerates us. And our celebration re-envisions us for how we live our lives. Let's pray.